Thank you for listening to the Reformation Bible Church podcast. We hope you are edified and encouraged by our ministry as you listen to our Gospel of John sermon series. For more sermons and resources, please visit the RBC website at www.rbcbakersfield.org. Thank you once again. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. God, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you for giving us the, the great privilege that you have given us this morning to come and to sit and listen to your word and to worship God. To worship in hearing your word. To worship as being good listeners. To worship as being good note takers. To worship as being good doers of your word as it is preached to our ears this morning. Help us to be humble. Help us to be humble, Lord, to receive your word. Help us, Lord, not to look to the left or to the right and say that this message is for that particular person. But let us look within ourselves, Lord, and ask, how does this message that is coming from God's word, how can it be applied to my life and how can I most glorify God in obeying that which is spoken from your holy word this morning? Give us ears to hear. Give us minds to understand. Give us hearts to to believe. Lord, if there are those here this morning who have not yet come to faith in you, we pray that you would, even now, as they have heard the gospel in the opening scripture and in the prayer this morning, and as they will hear it in the gospel or in the word that is preached this morning, we pray that you would give them ears, hearts, eyes, and minds to see, hear, believe, and repent and trust in you. Lord, I decrease that you may increase become less so that you can become more. I pray that you would move me out of the way this morning and that you and that you alone would be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us on this Lord's Day as we continue our exposition of the Gospel of John. We are now approaching the, the final verses in this 13th chapter. Jesus is in the particular place where we are having his final meal with his disciples before the Passover and before his passion is displayed at the cross. After washing the the feet of his disciples, they are, as you can imagine, shamefully and silently sitting at the feast when Jesus, being troubled in spirit, makes a, a startling statement found in John 13, 21. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. His disciples were obviously troubled by what Jesus had just said. They began to look around at one another, unsure of whom Jesus was speaking of. Peter motioned to John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who was sitting closest to Jesus, and motioned to him, find out who is going to betray him. So John leaned back on the chest of Jesus and whispered, Lord, who is it? Verse 26, Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So Jesus dipped the morsel of bread and handed it to Judas Iscariot. Just so that you are aware, there are two Judases in the company of Jesus. So they, they always designate Judas Iscariot to differentiate from the other Judas. At that moment that Jesus handed Judas the morsel of bread... He became possessed, possessed by Satan, to carry out what was already intended in his heart to carry out. 
the betrayal of the only innocent man who ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 27, Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Verse 30, so after receiving the morsel of bread, he, Judas, immediately went out and it was night. And it certainly was night when Judas exited the place where Jesus was. As it is also night for every single person who turns from Christ and refuses the grace that he offers. Those who reject Christ live in the night along with Judas and every other betrayer and rebel of Christ. The departure of Judas, though, appears to, to relieve the mind of Jesus. The evil one has gone out, and Jesus is now sitting there with the faithful eleven. To these faithful disciples, Jesus, for the next four chapters, begins to focus his attention solely on them. In the verses that we will examine today, we will see God the Father and God the Son glorified. We will see the tender, loving care Tender, tender fatherly care of Christ and a new command, a love exchange. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. John chapter 13, verse 31. This is the word of God. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated this morning. If you're taking notes, number one, God the Father and God the Son glorified. Verse 31, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. As the, the traitor Judas heads into the night for the purpose of turning Jesus into the religious leaders, Jesus then turns to his disciples and says this, Now is the Son of Man glorified. Now. It was as if the going out of Judas had signified that the hour that Jesus so often spoke of, that that hour was now up. That the, the, the sands of the hourglass were turned upside down, as it were, and all of the sand was all but gone. G Judas had gone out to seek the religious leaders, and they would come and soon find Jesus praying in the garden called Gethsemane. But before that moment was to take place, 
Jesus has some final words for his faithful disciples. And John points out the word now. And now what? Verse 31 and 32 tells us, Now the Son of Man will be glorified. The question is this. How is the Son of Man going to be glorified? How was there going to, to be, how was the glory going to be accomplished? It was through the agony and the shame of the cross that God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, would be glorified. Now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. How? The agony and the shame of the cross. Jesus Christ is about to walk into the storm. A storm called Calvary. He did not turn away from the storm. He did not run from the storm as you and I might possibly do or you and I no doubt would do. Rather, he ran straight into the eye of the storm. And think about this. We have a great paradox in that we see the agony of the Son of God in in the, the Garden of Gethsemane praying that this cup would pass from him. And then yet did we see Christ standing in front of the cross, not overcome by it, but seemingly eager to embrace the cross, to bring it closer. One of the, the visions or the, the images that I will never shake from my mind is in the Passion of the Christ, where Jesus Christ picks up the cross and he seems to kind of carry it. And he, he pats it on the wooden back as if to say, I am yours and you are mine right now. Jesus tells his disciples in Luke 22 that he has earnestly desired, earnestly desired to eat this particular Passover meal with them. What was so earnest about it? What was so anxious about it? What did he want eagerly to do? To embrace the cross, to take the agony, to take the shame. But why? There's a great anticipation that Jesus has concerning the cross Understand this, the people of that day saw the cross as the most degrading symbol of death reserved only for the lowest of the low criminals. And yet the Apostle John points out that Christ deemed the cross as the very highest point of his glory. The world saw it as the lowest point of any human being, but Christ saw it as the highest point of his glory. And in that, we approach another paradox. That the cross is the very lowest expression of the humble humility of Christ. And yet at the very same time, it is the the highest point of his glory. When it was time for Christ to go to the cross, he did not fear the pain of the cross. He did not fear the beatings, the floggings, the nails, the spear of of the Roman soldiers. He embraced that pain. But why? There are so many reasons why, but the overarching reason for why he embraced the pain, why he embraced the cross was this. Because God would be glorified in the Son. Oh, your, your, his love for you is involved? Yes, that's one aspect. But the overarching, the greatest reason of why Christ embraces the cross is because in that, God will be glorified through the Son. The great mystery of the Son being glorified is deep, and as he said, God is glorified in him, the Son. The fact that God is glorified in a man is not mysterious. We glorify God all the time. But the fact that God will be glorified by the death of an innocent man, oh, that is mysterious. But not just any man, the God-man. God in the flesh. 
Notice not just by Jesus, but through Jesus. How? Think about this for a moment. If the entire life of Christ was a continual manifestation of the divine character of God, then think about this. Then what did the cross manifest or reveal to us concerning God? Think about that again. If the entire life of Jesus Christ was a continual manifestation of the divine character of God, then what exactly did the cross manifest and reveal to us about God? If His words were the perfect display of His divine wisdom, if His compassion was the divine display of His pity, if His lowliness was a display of His divine gentleness, and if all of these and so much more were the brightest and clearest examples to the world of who God really is, then how are we to understand what the cross communicates to the world concerning who God is? Oh, it communicates this. Just how much God loves his own. It communicates this, that when you see the cross, it should communicate to you just how much God communicated to us through his son that he loves his own. We know the verse, but do we really understand what it reveals about the true character and nature of God? John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Do you understand what God is communicating to us through His Son? It was through God willingly sending His one and only Son and through the Son willfully going to the cross that Christ displays for us the true nature of who God is. And in that, God is greatly glorified. Think of our children. When our children behave in honorable ways, at the same time, they honor you with their honorable behavior. But when they behave in dishonorable ways, who do people most often look at as a reflection of who that child is reflecting? You. And me. So our greatest desire is to see them go into the world and be good men and women of society. Why? Because you want the best for them, sure. But ultimately, because they're a reflection of who you are. Your strengths and your weaknesses. And Christ reveals for us in God nothing but strength. Christ reveals for us in God nothing but love. Christ reveals for us in God nothing but grace for those who are his own. Now to those who are not, oh, he reveals his justice. For those who are not, he reveals his judgment. To those who are not, he reveals that God's incoming or soon coming wrath will come. But so it is with God the Son. Willfully going to the cross on behalf of sinners. God the Son displays the mercy of God the Father and thus he is glorified. Verse 32. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself. God will glorify in him, in the Son himself. God will glorify in the Son himself. Verse, uh, John 17.5 says, And now, Jesus praying, Father, glorify me in your own presence. With the glory that I had with you before the world existed. 
The Father and the Son, they glorify each other. Although they are distinct, they are one in essence. And I'd like you to think about this for a moment. Ask yourself this question. When we think about the final week of Christ, what do we admire most? The voluntary surrender of Christ to die for sinful people? Or should we admire the willingness of the Father to give up such a son to die for sinful people? Who do we admire most? The son who willfully dies or the father who willfully gives? The answer is simple. God the Son is glorified. God the Father is glorified. And the Father is glorified through the Son and the Son brings glory to the Father. Do you see that? The point is this. It's impossible to separate the triune God and the glory that belongs to Him. So you admire both equally. Because they are one in essence and they are one in purpose. Verse 32, and glorify him at once. God will glorify the Son without delay. At once. There will be no delay in the glory that belongs and comes to the Son. And the Apostle John kind of looks back at Christ and what he has done and says with all certainty, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. He gives us a glimpse into that glory that took place at the cross. His glory took place at the one place that we would have all ran from. And brothers and sisters, you will not be able to understand the meaning of the life of Christ without understanding the meaning of his death and the glory that was found there at the cross. The cross is only minutes, hours away. Jesus needs his disciples to know and to remember these words because they will soon, they will soon be terrified. They will soon be horrified as they see their teacher hanging on a cross. He needs them to know, however much pain you feel because of your love for me and seeing me this way. It is the most glorifying act both to Christ and to the Father. His disciples would not understand this. We would not be able to understand this. If we lived during that time, we could not understand how being falsely mocked or falsely accused, mocked before the crowds, sentenced to death, whipped, flogged, forced to carry a cross, nailed to that cross, pierced on your side, hanging on that cross for six hours between two thieves. How, with, with a, a mocking sign above your head here, King of the Jews, how could that bring any glory to God? And yet, the saying is true. This sacrifice would bring glory to God the Son and to God the Father. Let us allow J.C. Ryle to preach to us for just a moment. Concerning the cross, he says, the cross, it glorified his wisdom. His faithfulness, his holiness, and his love, it showed him wise in providing a plan whereby he could be just and yet also the justifier of the ungodly. It showed him, the cross, it showed him faithful in keeping his promise that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. It showed him holy in requiring his law's demands to be satisfied. By our great substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. It showed him loving and providing such a mediator, such a redeemer, and such a friend for sinful men as, he co, as the co 
eternal Son of God. The crucifixion brought glory to the Son. It glorified His compassion, His patience, and His power. It showed Him most compassionate in dying for us, suffering in our stead, allowing Himself to be counted as sin for us, allowing Himself to be a curse for us, and buying our redemption with the price of His own precious blood. It showed him most patient in not dying the common death of most men, but willing to submit to such pains and unknown agonies as no man, no mind could conceive. When with a word, he could have summoned his father's angels and been set free. It showed him most powerful in bearing the weight of all the transgressions of all the people of all the world and vanquishing Satan despoiling him of his prey, you and I. Brothers and sisters, let us hold dear the crucifixion and the glory that Christ attained at the cross. The pictures that we see of Christ hanging on a cross on walls and in churches, the jewelry that we wear around our necks, the tattoos that we have on our bodies, the so-called crucifix that we give ourselves, oh, they are nice gestures. But they will never be able to tell of the agonizing death that our Lord Jesus suffered on behalf of his elect. And oh, the height, the length, the depth and the wonder working power of the cross. God's law was honored. Man's sin was carried. Punishment taken by the perfect substitute. Salvation purchased for sinners. All of this and so much more accomplished at the cross. To the glory of God the Father and God the Son. It's no wonder why Paul says in Galatians 6.14, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Are you tired of hearing of the cross? You should not be. Because without the cross, you, my friends, would still be slaves in the slave market, thinking that you were free. Oh, But for the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, who saved us from ourselves. No, who saved us from ourselves and from the wrath of God. Number two, Jesus's fatherly affection. Verse 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you, yet you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, I say to you now, where I am going, you cannot come. Have you ever been moved or have you ever moved away from people that you cared deeply for? Have you ever had to stay, say goodbye to a friend knowing that you will most likely never see them again or that your relationship will most likely change and never be the same? As Jesus looks into the eyes of those whom he has chosen to walk with, he has chosen them to walk with him. For the past three and a half years, he sees their faces and he knows that they know. Something is about to change. He sees their faces and he knows that they know things are never going to be the same again, are they, Jesus? There's going to be a change in our relationship. And he says to those whom he loved to the full, loved to the end, loved to the max, with tender loving care of a good father, little children, little ones, a term he had never used before, as if he was their father. And he literally is their father. He says to them, our time together is coming to a close. Can you imagine? 
This is the end. You must imagine their pain. They have left everything to follow Jesus. They left jobs. They left families. They left their lives as they knew them to follow this man. And now he is saying to all of them, this is the end. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. He said to the Jews back in chapter 7, you will seek me. But there was a difference. He says to them, added, but you will not find me. He says to his disciples, you will seek me. But right now you cannot come. You will join me later. But at this particular time, you cannot come with me to my death. You cannot come with me to my resurrection or to my ascension. But there will be a time when you and I will be reunited again. And this relationship that we have, that you've experienced, it's been sweet, but you don't have any idea of how much sweeter it will be the next time we meet. Can you imagine that? And he says to them, but I've got a command for you in my absence. A new command. Number three, a new command. A love exchange. Verse 34, a new command I give to you, that you will love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love, if you have love one for another. As Jesus prepares to depart from his little children, he gives them a a new command. To love one another. The interesting thing about this command is this. It's not a new command. We see this command all the way back in Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18. You shall love, you shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against your sons or your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So when Jesus says a new command he gives them, how are we to understand in what sense is this command new? In order for us to to understand what Jesus means, we have to gain a deeper understanding by looking at the original language of this text. So let's go to the Greek for a moment. The Greek word for the word new is the word neos or neos, N-E-O-S. It is the normal word with, it is the normal word used for new, listen now, don't fall asleep, with respect to time, meaning it has never existed before until now. Neos. But there's another word for new. Kainos, K-A-I-N-O-S, which means new with respect to form or quality. An example for us is in John chapter 19, verse 41. The tomb that the Lord Jesus was laid in when he was buried was referred to as new. But it was not new in the sense that they made a new tomb for Jesus that had never existed before. It was new in the sense that nobody had ever laid in it before. It had always been there. But nobody had ever laid it in it before. It was unused. In the same way, the command that the Lord Jesus gives us is not new in the sense it's the first time it's ever been commanded. But he's pointing to a commandment with a new dimension and a new quality because of Jesus. Love one another. This is a new quality of love because Jesus is pointing to, listen, to an ultimate standard of love that has never been seen before. Now, the love command has always been there, but the quality and the person from whom it's coming and the standard for which it was shown has never been seen before. Who is the standard? Christ is the standard. He is the new standard, and his sacrifice will soon, that will soon take place is the highest expression of what Leviticus 19 actually
actually means. Love one another. How, Jesus? Just as I have loved you. Do you see that? You are also to love one another. He doesn't just say love one another because then all of a sudden we would be the standard of how we love. But he says to them, I've given you a standard of how you are to love one another just as I have loved you. That is the standard. So when we look for how do we love one another, we, look, we need not look any further than the example set by the Lord Jesus Christ. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. What is the standard? Christ is the standard. You see how Christ has loved. That is how we are to love. How has he loved? Well, he has lived with them for the past three years. And now they will see the ultimate expression of how much he loves them at the cross. At the cross. As a side note, the love that Jesus is speaking of is not love for outside, for those outside of Christ. It's for those in Christ. He's speaking specifically of those who will belong to Christ who are found in the local church. He's not saying love the person who is not a believer in the same way that I loved you. He's saying love the fellow believers, those who are in Christ, the same way that I have loved you. That doesn't mean that we're not supposed to love the people outside the church, but to those who are outside of the church, they should see the best expression of who Christ is by the way we love each other. The local church. Amen. How do we best become effective witnesses to the outside world? By our love one for another. Brothers and sisters, how did Christ love? He loved selflessly. Selflessly. He didn't love them because of what he thought he might get back from them. Our love is, a, is often a means to an end. Not an end itself. Does that make sense? Our love is often a means to an end. We are trying to gain something. When our love should just be the end itself. I just choose to love. Jesus loved because he was in and of himself love. True love loves even when nobody loves back. True love gives even when nobody gives back. True love doesn't say, well, I put myself out there and they didn't give anything back. So I guess I'll restrict my love from them from now on. True love says, I'll keep on giving even if they don't give me love back. Amen. Amen. How did he love? He loved sacrificially. He was prepared to take the pain of Calvary for these people. Genuine love takes pain. I'm going to say that again. Genuine love takes the pain. The world walks away when things get tough. The world walks away when things get painful. The world says, things are hard. Surely we're not supposed to keep on loving when things are this tough, right? Well, it depends on who your standard of love is. If your standard of love is one another, then yes, walk away. If your standard of love is what you see on the novellas and what you see on television and the movies, then yes, walk away. The world gives up. That's exactly what they do. But you and I must look to Christ as our ultimate standard and we must endure. He loves sacrificially and we will never be able to love the person down the street if we never learn how to love sacrificially even first here within the local church. Give to one another. Love each other through the pain. Love each other when it gets hard. Love each other through the difficult times. Love one another. Do you know that Christ knew that these people who said they loved him would soon turn and walk away or run away from him? And did he say when they ran away, that's it, I'm not going to love you anymore? No. 
He showed up in the midst of them. Touch here. Feel the side where I was pierced. And drew them even closer. How did he love? He loved understandingly. He loved them with eyes open, not with eyes closed. The old saying, true love is blind. That's a lie and that's a myth. True love is not blind. True love has its eyes wide open. Do you think that Jesus was blindly loving his disciples? Think about this. One man was a tax collector. Another man was a hasty, ignorant man, full of passion. It always spoke off the top of his head without knowing what he was saying. Another man was young, along with his brother, hot-headed and quick to anger. Another man had a tendency to doubt all things. And another man was a betrayer. And all these people would soon leave him. Was it because he was blind and did not know what was going to happen with them? No, he continually told them that these things would take place. John 13, 19. I'm telling you these things now before it takes place. That when it does take place, you will believe that I am he. No, he was not blind. He knew exactly who these men were. Listen, and in spite of who they were, he still chose them. And loved them in spite of who they were. True love knows exactly who you are and loves you just the same. True love knows exactly who you're not and loves you just the same. Amen. One of the great questions that I ask when people ask me to marry them is, do you love this person? Oh, I love them. Are you in love with them? I'm over the moon for them. Would you love that person if they stayed exactly how they are and never, ever changed? Meaning what? Meaning some of the things that you don't like about them got worse. Meaning some of the things that you wish would change about them never changed, but got worse. Would you endure? Would you bear with them because you say you love them? There's usually a pause. And because the person may be sitting next to them, they'll say most often, oh, yes, of course. Until two years later, they say, we need to have counseling about this thing that I didn't admit the first time we sat down and talked. Are you going to love them through it, though? It's one of the great questions we ask you when you join the church. Do you love this church? Yes. Do you love this church if nothing changed in this church? What if nothing, the things that you don't like about this church didn't get any better, but they stayed the same and maybe even got worse? Would you still stay a part of this church or would you leave this church? Because that particular thing never got any better. We do not love if someone meets our standard and then we love them. We love them regardless of the standard. Because Christ is our standard of how we love. If Christ said to his disciples, I love you when you get here. They would have never gotten there. Amen. For those of you who think I'll start discipling when I get here, you never disciple then. I'll start sharing the gospel when I get this much knowledge, then you'll never get it. I'll start going out and, and, and walking with our brothers and sisters as they go out to the marketplace or as they go to hungry and the homeless, then you'll never do it. If you're waiting to, to achieve some level, then you'll never do it. Christ is our standard. And love like Christ did. Christ did not wait. Christ went. Next, Christ loved forgivingly. A love that has not learned to forgive will soon shrivel up and die. A love that has not learned to forgive will soon shrivel up and die. Any marriage that does not know the joy of forgiveness will not last. 
Any marriage that does not know the joy of forgiveness will not last. Any relationship in this local church that does not know the joy of obeying the command to forgive one another and endure will not endure. And their witness to the world will be ineffective. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as Christ, for, as God forgave you in Christ. When you talk about the church, the local church, in a negative way, you said the unbelieving world, you hurt the witness of the local church. When you have beef with people in the local church and you talk about the people in the church, what kind of witness are you to the unbelieving world? Why would they want to join this if they can get the same thing out there. Right. Jesus looks at his disciples and commands, not suggests, but commands that they love one another. And brothers and sisters, does love matter? Does it even matter? It matters more than anything. Verse 35, why? By this all people will, will know that you are my disciples. If you love, have love one for another. This is to be a distinguishing mark of our belonging to Christ. First John 4.12 says, No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Listen to this. The invisible God becomes visible when we love one another. Isaiah prayed that this morning. That the, the, the visible church would be made known by our love for one another. When the world sees our love for one another, even those who says, If I could just see God, I would believe in Him. All they need to, to look or the, uh, the length to which they need to look, they need not look any further than the local church loving one another. And in that, God is made visible by our love for each other. Amen. Love is the overarching, driving passion of the church to love through obedience. And we are marked as disciples when we loved. We become assured of our standing with Christ when we love one another. We, we know we are in Christ by obedience, by belief, and by true love. The Bible says in 1 John 3.13, Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life. Why? How? Because we love the brothers. Imagine that. We know that we have passed from death to life simply because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever does not love abides in death. We know that we have passed from death to life because we have behaved correctly, believed correctly, and loved correctly. These are the evidence that one has come to true faith. And if there are none of these in yourself, then you must examine yourself. Am I still in death? And loving one another is not, hey man, good to see you, give you a hug, and then go home and never see, never contact, never love, never experience any kind of fellowship with one another throughout the entire week until we see each other the next week and say, how you doing? Good. See you next week. That's not love. If you were dating someone and you saw them once a week and you said to them, how are you doing? They said to you, I'm doing good. And that was the extent of what you said to one another. I'll see you next week. Would anybody know you were in love? They wouldn't even know that you knew each other. So how do we get off here at this church, attending sometimes once a week or maybe even never, except on holidays that are soon approaching, and say, yes, I love God? Well, how do you love God who you haven't seen, but you can't love your neighbor who you do see? 
John tells us, you're deceiving yourself. And notice this. He does not call us to like one another. His command is, brothers and sisters, a new command I give you, like one another. Liking is biological. Let me give you an example. Who likes 7-Up? Four people. Who likes Coke? More of you. That'll kill you faster than 7-Up. Who likes boxing? Who likes hockey? Ray is the only weird one in this place. Not everyone is naturally drawn to one another. We don't all like the same things. And if we're honest, we don't all like each other. Some of you don't like me, and you don't have to. You're stuck with me, and I'm stuck with you, but you don't have to like me. The command is that you must love me. And I have to love you too. And think about this. It is in loving each other that we learn to like each other. Right? But if we wait to like each other before we love each other, then we're never going to love each other. Amen. This is why Jesus does not say like each other. Isn't it true that when we do things that are expressions of love, the people that we didn't normally and formally like, we actually come to love. And what changed? Did they change? No, they're still the person that we really don't like. But we, we have changed and we come to understand that there are some great things about that person. By I me mean, just taking the time out to love them like I never had before. We believers are to be marked by love and obedience. We were once dead in sin and trespasses. Christ, by his loving grace and mercy, lived the life that we could not live, and he died the death that we deserved. And friends, he voluntarily went to the cross for the sake of those who would one day come to repent and believe that only he died, but that he rose from the dead. He purchased his people from the prison of sin and gave them a right standing with God so that they could now stand innocent of sin because of the perfect finished work of Christ. Friends, and if you have not repented of your sin and trusted in Christ for your salvation, then I urge you to do so this morning. I urge you to turn from your sin and to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. And you will find him to be a perfect, loving, gracious Savior. And your life will never be the same. Myself, the elders and members here in the church, we would love to talk to you about that after church. If you'd like to learn more about what I just shared with you, the gospel. And with that, we're going to celebrate the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning at his table. Let us stand.